The word neuroscience might make you think of science fiction, but recent developments in the field are making changes in the legal world. Hello, I'm Patch Crusimano, and this is Fordham Conversations. Today I'm talking to Deborah Denno, head of the Fordham Neuroscience and Law Center. We are going to discuss how neuroscience is being used in the legal system and the ethical issues that could arise in the future. How are you doing today, Professor Denna? I'm doing fine, thank you. All right, so let's just start with something simple. What is neuroscience? I define neuroscience very broadly. I think neuroscience is anything having to do with the brain and perception and how they interrelate with our behavior. What is the overall goal of the Neuroscience and Law Center? The overall goal of the Neuroscience and Law Center is really twofold. Number one, just to get the facts on how the criminal justice system is treating this evidence. Uh, I was going to many conferences where it became clear that really nobody knew what the criminal justice system was doing. Everybody's been talking about the same five cases for about two decades now, or really highly publicized cases, as opposed to I wanted to see the everyday case uh, using neuroscience and how the criminal justice system system has actually reacted to this in a real way. Uh, that's number one. But number two, uh, now that I'm starting to get a pretty good handle on how the criminal justice system uh, uses this evidence, then other questions come about. How could it do a better job of using this evidence? Uh, what's it doing wrong? What's it doing right? Uh, and what should we do and expect for the future? Should we be changing our laws? Should we be changing our whole view of human nature. These are the questions I'm grappling with now and it's really a rewarding experience. When did discoveries in neuroscience begin to affect changes in the legal system? Neuroscience is a young field. It really started in about 1963. The legal system started recognizing developments in neuroscience soon thereafter, as the legal system is often ought to do. Of course, in the criminal system in particular, everything focuses on what's happening with the human's mind and what's happening with their behavior, in which case it's no surprise that lawyers are going to start looking at developments in neuroscience. So what are some recent discoveries in neuroscience that are having strong real-life effects on the legal system? Well, on the one hand, we have effects that are general that have have everything to do with human behavior, and then the second part is how do they relate to the legal system and criminal law in particular. We're finding, for example, that there's enormous interconnectivity between the, our behavior and what happens to us on the outside. So, for example, everything from how long we sleep to whether or not we exercise or what we're eating or what our gut bacteria looks like, all of these factors have something to do with the brain. Take that two two steps forward and we start looking about how these interconnections have to do with criminal behavior or legal issues in particular. Okay, so what specific laws and procedures have changed due to discoveries in neuroscience? Could you give me some specific examples? 
Of course, you know, the law doesn't really change very quickly. So what happens is uh, criminal defense attorneys or prosecutors start introducing evidence in court that typically play out with the doctrines that we already have and with the legislation that we already have. So over the past few decades, for example, with the growing interest and in introduction of MRI techniques and brain scans into the courtroom, we're starting to look at changes there. We know so much more now about the human brain and a lot of that information, brain scanning, uh, differences between criminal brains and non-criminal brains, et cetera, are being introduced into court, particularly to suggest that defendants may not be as responsible for their crimes as we previously thought, or as mitigating evidence. This is particularly pronounced in death penalty cases. To argue, for example, that the defendant isn't as responsible for their behavior as we thought, or they didn't tend to engage in the behavior for which they were prosecuted and convicted. Could you um, explain the difference between a uh, criminal and a non-criminal brain? Sure, of course. Uh the brains of everyone look pretty much the same, and we, however, scientists have started to see some differences over time in brain scans of, uh, with people who have committed crimes as opposed to those who haven't. Or, contrarywise, um, evidence is introduced into court showing that uh, a particular criminal may have uh, frontal lobe damage or other kind of brain damage that may resemble uh, what we may find in, in individuals who are particularly aggressive or impulsive. So, for example, there's been recent research showing that some people who engage in criminal behavior have a certain kind of brain lesion in a particular part of their brain uh, as opposed to people who, who don't commit crimes. And, uh, and this is sort of interesting research because in the past we've noticed uh, sometimes uh, differences between the um, brain scans on people who have committed crimes as opposed to those who haven't, but it's really hard to draw uh, correlations with causation. You know, how does that relate to criminal behavior? Increasingly, we've seen some studies showing that, say, individuals who make bad decisions or who have make poor moral choices are more apt to have a certain kind of brain lesion as opposed to somebody who doesn't make poor moral choices. So can we talk about some real-life examples of how brain damage might influence a person's behavior and how that could apply to the law? This evidence is most frequently introduced into death penalty cases. And with the argument that uh, certain kinds of brain lesions or certain kind of brain damage uh, indicates that the criminal didn't intend their behavior as much as we previously thought, or they acted very impulsively. So there have been a number of cases where criminals have used this um, this evidence uh, to suggest that they were under greater stress or, in, or acting impulsively. And jurors in some of these cases can be rather influenced by this kind of evidence. So uh, in a number of death penalty cases, uh, when this evidence is introduced, it has an effect on jurors. We know that because jurors are interviewed later on, and they indicate that this influenced them. Uh, however, you know, in other cases it doesn't. It's hard to know at the grand, in, in the grand scheme of things, how influential this evidence is, but we do know in certain kinds of criminal cases that it can be, uh, it can be influential. So in one case, for example, this was a case of two individuals who uh, is several years ago escaped from prison. They ended up um, taking the bus of a retired couple who were out camping. Uh, they ended up killing 
pretty brutally this retired couple and burning their bus down. Uh, but one of the criminals in particular had pretty extensive frontal lobe damage, and his defense attorney was able to use that evidence to suggest that he shouldn't get the death penalty, and that did have an uh, effect on the jury. At the same time, I want to emphasize this is person doesn't get off. I mean, you read that a lot in newspaper articles that somebody sounds like they're set free. All it meant was they weren't going to be executed. So when somebody takes brain damage, you say it affects their intent and their impulsivity. Do you know how that works? We've seen in the cases, particularly of people uh, on death row, of long, extensive brain damage from early on. Usually these people have some sort of brain injury uh, early on during birth, for example, birth injury, uh, and, and regular periodic brain injury throughout the course of their lives. Uh, for example, they may have been beaten by their parents. They may have had devastating injuries. In a number of cases, I've seen people have been hit by cars, things like that. I mean, usually these are people growing up in pretty tough neighborhoods, uh, and they frequently become extensive drug users, so you have brain damage as a result of of that or um, being shot in the head, etc. So by the time this individual reaches adulthood, uh, they may have a kind of brain that would make them far more impulsive to react very impulsively to certain kinds of situations that somebody without that brain damage wouldn't react so strongly to. And it also affects their level of intentionality. In other words, in the criminal law, we always want to know, did this person intend to do what they did? Uh, if brain damage suggests that that level of intentionality wasn't there, then that has a huge bearing on their, on their level of responsibility. Lastly, there's some indication among some of these individuals that they can't foresee the nature and consequences of their acts in the way that perhaps you and I can. They don't realize that if they engage in some kind of behavior that it may have devastating consequences. That's very interesting. So some research suggests that head trauma could literally make you not able to think your action is through, like the repercussions just don't materialize in their head? That's right. The repercussions simply don't materialize in their head. Or number one, uh, even going back further than that, uh, they're not thinking before they stab someone. Uh, they're going to have a greater level of impulsivity or reflex response than you and I would have, where we wouldn't hopefully wouldn't stab anybody at all. These individuals just would react very reflexively and very, very strongly to a certain kind of stimuli. So in a lot of these cases, for example, they may be a robbery where uh, they break into a home, uh, they want to rob or they want to burgle the home. The homeowner happens to be there, uh, happens to have a weapon and starts to fight somebody off. All of this is unexpected. Uh, and a defendant may react very strongly and impulsively, not intending to kill anybody at all, but just uh, reacting to the to the circumstance uh, because uh, because they don't have as much control over their behavior and also can't foresee the consequences of what they're doing. This is Patrick Russomano, and you're listening to Fordham Conversations on ninety point seven WFUV. I'm talking with Deborah Denno. She's the head of Fordham University's Neuroscience and Law Center. We're discussing how our legal system is adapting to discoveries in neuroscience. Why does intent have such a strong effect on sentencing? Some people might argue that intent is not that relevant since 
you kill somebody reflexively versus you plan to kill somebody. The person's still dead. So why does intent have such a strong factor on punishment and rehabilitation? That's a great question. I mean, somebody could say, look, the person's dead or they were killed brutally. What do we care about whether the defendant intended to do what they did? Uh, but uh, this is the key uh, portion of the criminal law and the criminal justice system that's so significant. We really can't punish anybody unless they have a certain level of culpability. We just don't do that. Centuries and centuries ago we did. You know, somebody committed a crime or engaged in an act, uh, they were punished. But we don't do that anymore. We recognize in the criminal justice system that we have to have a mental state as well as an act. And that's critically important to any system where we're punishing people as severely as we do in the United States. States. What, what's the history of us factoring in intent? Is this like a centuries-old tradition? Does it go back to certain philosophers? Are there influential cases that kind of established that you need to have that intent factored in? Intent is an interesting concept. It really has developed over our country's history and the history of the world, really. Centuries and centuries ago, the thought was that the devil made you do it. We drowned witches and tortured individuals thinking that um, they were reacting because they were godless. The more we learned about the human behavior, the more we realized uh, how intricate and interesting it was. This really starting in the 13th century uh, became the development and recognition of mental state. And this was uh, really with the introduction of uh, religious strictures. Um, you know, if you look at the history of the Bible and in, in particular, although of course this applies to all kinds of religions, there was growing recognition that individuals have some sort of control over their behavior and that you also need a certain level of intentionality or thought uh, and that you, we have to show that to find some level of culpability. Um, and so uh, particularly starting in the 20th century and the 21st century, of course, this has been the touchstone of the criminal justice system in the United States and, of course, in all Western countries. You use that example of people thought the devil caused evil. Did justice over time evolve from a sense of removal, like this person's a murderer, the murder was caused by the devil, so we have to remove him. And then now we think of it as more, this person's a murderer, we have to punish them, that's right. We now think that this person is a murderer and we have to punish them, but also we recognize in the criminal justice system that we have a lot of defenses and excuses. Sometimes people don't like to hear that, but we do and we have for about two centuries. So we punish people, but we also recognize that uh, if somebody's insane and they don't appreciate the nature and consequences of their actions, if they can't tell the difference between right and wrong, then it would be incredibly unfair and unjust to punish them. Uh, we also don't punish people strongly if they've acted negligently or recklessly as opposed to intentionally or if they've acted accidentally. Uh, so you know, accidents happen for which no person is to blame, the criminal law recognizes, because we all engage in accidents. We even recognize in some cases that people have accidentally left their child in a car and that child has died as a result. And we don't punish those people, although in other cases we do. So we always recognize the differences between mental states, whether somebody's acting negligently or recklessly or knowingly, or whether they are in fact acting intentionally. And if they have an excuse of some 
sort, such as brain damage, or if they're insane, or they have diminished capacity, or they're acting in self-defense because they think, rightly so, that someone's going to kill them, then uh, the criminal justice system allots for those kinds of circumstances. Okay, so all this talk of head injury makes me think of something that's been in the public consciousness, especially in America recently, uh, the concussions in the NFL. Specifically, how do these repeated blows to the head, like what, what specific effects do they have on human behavior? And how are scientists and legal scholars addressing this link? Concussion is a great example of the issue of brain damage in our society because uh, it's, it's an example of a very serious brain injury or series of brain injuries over time, sometimes over the youth of a particular individual, where we start seeing behavioral changes and sometimes results in violence. Um, within somebody that we typically think is an innocent party. So, you know, this is a young person. They end up going uh, playing football in high school and then going on to college and then to the NFL. Uh, they're extremely disciplined, highly athletic individuals, um, usually doing very well in school, et cetera. We start seeing changes in their behavior. Uh, NFL just um, last year has now had to give out $1 billion to 20,000 uh, football players as a result of known scientific research showing that these individuals have suffered extraordinary level of brain damage as a result of this concussion evidence, you know, starting from anything from Lou Gehrig's disease, where they get the most amount of compensation to all sorts of brain damage, including dementia. Uh, that said, a number of these individuals have also engaged in violence against family members or others. Uh, the Aaron Hernandez case is a very good example of something like that. Aaron Hernandez may have been a well-known New England Patriots football player. However, in the end, the jury found that he was just a man who committed a brutal murder. The jury finds former Patriots tight end Aaron Hernandez guilty of murdering Odin Lloyd. His bullet-riddled body found in an isolated pit. You're committed to the NCI Cedar Junction for the term of your natural life without the possibility of parole. To the other developing headline tonight, the stunning fall for a former NFL star with the New England Patriots, Aaron Hernandez. Tonight, convicted of first-degree murder, sentenced to life without parole. Hernandez found guilty on three counts, first-degree murder and two weapons charges, sentenced to life behind bars. It's known that he most likely had CTE, uh, as well as uh, engaging in alcoholism and other kinds of troublesome behaviors for which this individual had no history before they started engaging in football and this uh, serious and experiencing the level of concussions that these people normally have. Okay, so say because Aaron Hernandez suffered these head injuries, should he get a lighter sentence for the crime of murder than somebody who has not had these repeated traumatic brain injuries? I mean, that's a great question. It's unclear whether he should get a lighter sentence. What should have happened, perhaps, is that evidence should have been introduced in court. A jury should have heard it or a judge should have heard it and considered it in terms of whether or not somebody like Aaron Hernandez had enough control over their behavior to have uh, prevented engaging in the kind of violence that he did or, contrary-wise, uh, that he should have gotten a lesser 
penalty because he didn't have as much control over his behavior. Again, this is something that a, a judge and jury would have to, to hear and to consider in a way to determine whether or not there should be any kind of mitigation. Okay, um, another example that's been very present in the public mind is the Flint water crisis, where in Flint, Michigan, their water has a, an extremely high level of lead in it. Yeah. And lead's linked to brain damage, violent behavior, and learning disabilities, especially in young people. How does the law work in cases like Flint, Michigan, where the local government has failed to provide clean drinking water? Is the government culpable for all the brain damage? It's very hard to sue the government, a state government or local government, or even, of course, the federal government, because they have all sorts of protections and immunities. Uh, there have been cases, and I've been involved in a case where there have been lawsuits, say, against landlords for allowing lead paint and not cleaning up levels of lead paint. Uh, that said, I think it's atrocious in Flint, Michigan, that these lead levels have been allowed to exist. People obviously have suffered greatly, and we probably haven't begun to see the level of suffering that will take place as these young people grow and develop. Say if a young person from Flint cannot provide for themselves due to lead poisoning, will the government be obliged to take care of them? It's unclear how much the government is going to be obligated to do to help and protect individuals who've been exposed to lead. I think that's something that's going to be resolved in the future because clearly these individuals are going to be experiencing and evidencing uh, behavioral problems, learning problems, difficulties in getting jobs, et cetera, as, as the years go on. For my PhD dissertation, I did a large study of uh, individuals born in Philadelphia, and the strongest predictor of impulsivity in school, as well as violence as a juvenile and violence as adult, was lead intoxication. It is devastating. This is pure correlation, but I actually saw an article that said the violent crime rate in the United States plummeted when we switched to unleaded gasoline. Yes, I'm aware of that study too. That is a you know study where there were correlations. It's hard to always you always hear the the saying, "Don't uh, confuse correlations with causation," uh, and it would be easy to do in, in that kind of situation. But for the fact that uh, that I and others have found a direct correlation between lead levels and and behavior, in which case those sort of broader correlations seem to be all the more compelling. Okay, so one more kind of real life example: addiction and crime, or very present in the public eye right now, especially due to the opioid epidemic. What does neuroscience say about addiction and how, how is the law adapting to these findings? In my research, I've been finding that courts are increasingly listening to evidence uh, concerning neuroscientific bases for, uh, for addiction, for substance abuse cases. Uh, whether or not they're truly considering that in mitigation is hard to tell sometimes because these cases are so incredibly complicated. They're involving so many factors and so many variables. That said, the fact that courts are even uh, increasingly willing to listen to this kind of evidence is, is a statement in and of itself about their openness to this kind of relationship. So how are neuroscientists and legal scholars working together to synthesize law and science? The link between neuroscience and law is still 
a pretty tenuous link. What typically happens is an attorney will rely on a neuroscientist to, as an expert in court, and that's how neuroscience comes in. Uh, and that expert will testify either based on their direct testing of an individual or based on their assessment of testing that other people have done on that individual. But then you'll see a battle of the experts. The defense brings in their experts, the prosecution brings in their experts, and they have differing uh, opinions of, on how this individual's culpability should weigh, etc. cetera. Uh, at, at the same time, there are a lot of neuroscientists who don't want to even go anywhere near the legal system. Uh, they think the legal system shouldn't incorporate neuroscience yet, that this is a science that's not ready to be introduced in, into court. So, so it's still a pretty embattled uh, area, but uh, I think with time and the greater precision of neuroscience and the greater willingness of neuroscientists to get involved in the legal system, we're going to see some vast changes. So what ethical and human rights issues does neuroscience, you know, bring about or affect? There's a concern that with increasing research, we're going to be starting to read people's brains. Indeed, there's already neuroscience evidence to suggest that we sometimes know what people are thinking. And uh, there's a concern that this could be used into court and that a person wouldn't have any kind of control over their thoughts. In other words, we would know what they were thinking and they wouldn't have any way of keeping that out. And uh, there's always been a premise in the criminal justice system that our thoughts are our own, that's our privacy. Uh, that said, neuroscience may start with time to encroach on that privacy, and a big issue will be to what extent will we be able to introduce into court thoughts and scans of thoughts where people have no control over uh, that kind of evidence. And that really brings up the issue of the Fifth Amendment, the right to not self-incriminate. How would the Fifth Amendment play into issues of people introducing brain scans into court. If somebody uses your body as evidence, is that considered testifying against yourself? Of course, the criminal justice system already has a long history of uh, using this kind of your bodily evidence uh, against you, so to speak, but it doesn't have a history of using brain evidence against you. And recent research shows that we're starting to be much better able to detect whether somebody is lying or deceiving us. Uh, lie detection evidence isn't able to be introduced into, into court quite yet, but that may be just around the corner. New discoveries in neurology are showing that some of human behavior is dictated by hormones and chemicals in our brain. Do you know how much of our behavior is dictated by these chemical reactions? How much of our behavior is dictated by chemical reactions depends on two things. First of all, it depends on the particular individuals and what their hormones or chemicals look like, number one. But number two, it really depends very heavily on our environment. Our environment shows as much about neuroscience as neuroscience shows about the environment. And there's a huge intertwining uh, between the two. And, and the more we learn, the more we realize that the environment has such a massive impact on our behavior. So in the grand scheme of things, it's really hard to extricate uh, the two, uh, in other words, neuroscience and the environment, um, So, because they're so heavily interdependent. And some scientists and philosophers would argue that the internal and external factors basically cause us to make decisions, and we don't 
have agency over our decisions. How much credibility does that claim have? Well, this, of course, is the big nature versus nurture debate. And if I could answer that, I would be quite the Nobel Prize winner or something. You know, this really depends on each of us and our own personal philosophies or maybe our own religion or our own makeup on, on how much we think nature versus nurture, whether they're two separate things or whether they're closely intertwined or, or whatever. Uh, the criminal justice system has long recognized that whatever is going on with us, whether it's nature or nurture or whatever, we're still going to have a system that uh, acts as though we all are agents and that we operate under free will, whether or not we really do. So even if we didn't have free will, in order to have a feasible legal system, we would have to treat it like we did? Well, that's one argument, but there's been particularly recently arguments saying that we should really change the criminal justice system if we don't have free will. And science is probably increasingly indicating that we may not or we may not nearly have as much free will as we thought we did. Uh, then the criminal justice system should change and recognize that. In other words, uh, this level of intentionality that we were talking about earlier uh, may be an entire myth. Uh, people don't really intend to do what they do at all. They, uh, they're they just hardwired. Uh, this is what our cellular structure uh, is laid out for, etc. Okay, one last question, Professor Denno. What surprised you the most as you started to delve in the link between neuroscience and the law? I think what surprised me the most is how incredibly political this field is and uh, how tense it is. Political in the sense that there's a divide between people who are more defense-oriented as opposed to those who are more prosecution-oriented. There's also a divide between those who are philosophers and those who are scientists. So we're all bringing our different perspectives and looking at this kind of evidence and how it plays on human behavior. And it's probably no surprise to you, but it was probably a bigger surprise to me that uh, in the long run, it probably depends more on your politics than it does on what the actual evidence is showing. And perhaps with time, uh, as neuroscience becomes more precise and more pronounced in society, we'll come to greater agreement irrespective of our political opinions. I'd like to thank my guest, Deborah Denno. You can like Fordham Conversations on Facebook, you can follow us on Twitter, and you can catch up with shows you've missed with our podcast. For WFUV's Fordham Conversations, I'm Patrick Russomano.